last week, I invited you, those who are here in person, uh, to write on cards questions. And I offered those of you who are on Zoom to write and send in questions and promise that I would respond to those questions. So I'm going to. So let me just give you a sense of the kind of questions that people asked, and then I will launch into whatever I'm going to launch into. Um, Jewish views on suicide and death with dignity, the experience of dying and prayer keeping you alive, cremation in the Jewish religion, what happens when you die. I'm not sure I'm going to tell you, but maybe I will. Um, how to deal with grief over a parent's death many years ago, particularly when there was conflict in the relationship. It's a really important, fascinating issue, actually. It goes along with the issue of how do you fulfill the mitzvah of kibbut av em, honor your father and mother when you've had an abusive father or mother, or both. I can also talk about <clears throat> uh, how grief works, how to be at peace over the death of loved ones, what does Jewish theology say about our ability to hear the voices of those not with us anymore? What does Judaism say about reincarnation? You like the list so far? Yeah. Um, what does Judaism say about the fear of death? Judaism and the end of life uh, dying rituals. Uh, how do you know when you're done grieving the loss of a loved one? I can answer that one really quickly and simply by saying you're never done. Grief never leaves. It just evolves and changes, but I'll talk a little more about that anyway. Um, what are techniques of living and learning from grief? Jewish customs of mourning, that's 13. You ready? So, I won't do them all tonight, but we'll do some of those. So that was the kind of questions that people sent in and asked. Um, so let me, actually, what I want to start with uh, tonight is... Give you a sense of, from Jew, traditional Judaism's perspective, what are the three primary mitzvot, religious obligations, at the time of death <clears throat> for those of us who are survivors, not the people dying? What are the, because there are three primary mitzvot or religious obligations that Jewish tradition expects uh, from us when we are confronted with the death of a loved one. There's the mitzvah of what in Hebrew is called avelut, which is mourning. The mitzvah of mourning itself, that is the obligations of mourners. What are our expectations as a mourner in Jewish tradition? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to say? How are we supposed to act? That's mitzvah number one. Mitzvah number two is the mitzvah of what's called kavod hamet, meaning honoring the deceased. So the first one's about us. second one's about how do you fulfill the mitzvah of honoring the person who died in the right way, obligations we have to the deceased. And the third of those three, or triumphant of mitzvot when someone we love dies, is um, the mitzvah of what's called nichum avelim, which is comforting the mourners, um, which is an interesting mitzvah. Um, Sometimes you're the only mourner. Uh, rarely are, and certainly not in traditional Judaism, was there expectation that you are an island unto yourself, because Judaism is a communitarian religious civilization. We are about community. We are not about, unlike in theory, Christianity, which is about personal salvation. It's really about you and Jesus, or you and God. Judaism is not about you and God. <clears throat> Not, it's not not about you and God, but it's not about you and God. It's about you and community, which is why we're always reminding people. <clears throat> I'm always reminding people anyway, that what gives Jews their identity is not primarily belief, but belonging, the sense of belonging to the Jewish people, being part of something bigger than us. We certainly have been experiencing that in the last few weeks <clears throat> uh, and being reminded of the peoplehood of Judaism. And um, we, all of us, try to explain what it means to be Jewish to people who are not Jewish. Sometimes we <clears throat> make reference to sort of wandering Jews. That is, we have been, <clears throat> from a traditional perspective, in exile, at least ever since the Romans kicked us out of Israel in the year 90. Before that, 
Babylonians kicked us out in 586 BCE, 600 years before. Jews have been all over the world. And uh, my lovely wife, the rabbi's lovely wife, Didi, just spent the week in Costa Rica with the Jews of Costa Rica, doctors and dentists and their kids. Um, We've been friends with for the last 20 plus years. Their parents came from Argentina and they came to Argentina from two shtetls in Poland. So they were there, then they had to get out. Actually, all the World War II was just getting started. The Holocaust was in its infant stages and they went where they could go, which was at the time to Argentina and then eventually moved up to Costa Rica. And I have relatives in, in Argentina. When I was born, my last name was Schneider. We have Schneiders in, um, it's a long story. <laughs> Schneiders in, uh, in Argentina and two brothers, one of them could get to the United States and came here and the other one couldn't get in and ended up in Argentina and some go right and you end up in Canada or you end up in wherever or in Israel or here and you go left and you end up in South America or Central America or England or Australia or wherever because we see ourselves as a, as a people and as a community. And when Jews go to other places and other countries around the world, and walk into a synagogue and hear somebody go, Shema, Yisrael, and they go, oh yeah, those are my people, as if they're cousins, as if they're relatives. It's how we relate, which is very different than a religion in the narrow sense where it's just co-believers of something. We are not co-believers in most things among Jews. That's why we are always saying two Jews and six opinions, because, you know, it's about the family. It's about literally tribal. And when we trace ourselves from the Torah, of course, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, and Rebecca, and Rachel, and Leah, and then Jacob's kids, at least the 12 sons, and more or less, not exactly, but more or less the 12 tribes of Israel are those 12 sons, not exactly, but close enough, and then we trace ourselves from that. It's all familial from family. And so, so too with mourning and death, and the rituals that we expect in Jewish tradition about mourning, it's about me. What are my obligations as a mourner? What are my obligations to the deceased? And what is the community's obligations to me as a mourner? Because the assumption is always, I'm not by myself on the desert island. I'm in community. And so we have Shiva, we have things where people are expected to show up because that's the fundamental mitzvah of life is Showing up. So, the mitzvah of mourning. Start with that. You become a mourner. The minute you hear of the death of a loved one, you're instantly a mourner. <clears throat> Legally in Jewish life, along with emotionally and everywhere else. You hear someone dies, someone that you care about, <clears throat> you become a mourner. Um, there's different degrees of, officially, of mourners in Jewish life, there's first-degree mourners and everybody else. First-degree mourners are sort of the obvious, you know, husband, wife, parents, children. Those are the first-degree mourners. Um, and then it goes out like pebbles in the pond with the ripples that go out. Uh, and the time between the death of a loved one and their funeral or their burial is a separate legally in Jewish life uh, space of time. It's in Hebrew called aninut. That's the time between death and burial. Aninut literally means afflicted. It's interesting. That's where that notion in traditional Judaism comes from. It's the time when you're the most crazy, you know, and in shock and unoverwhelmed. And suddenly you have to do a million things and make a million choices and make a million decisions, which is why I tell everybody to make sure you have your plots and your own decisions about yourself and what should happen to you when you die, because it's a mitzvah for everybody who comes after you, who has to figure out what to do with you, make the arrangements. It's also less expensive than when you have to do everything on the spot and then leave instructions for people because it's a time of the most disorientation of our lives is that period between death and burial. 
when you suddenly are confronted with both the loss and having to make all these decisions and having to figure out what, what to do next. The, it's the intensity of that first stage of mourning. Um, and traditionally, I'll keep saying traditionally, because of course in this world, people do whatever they want, but traditionally there's a blessing you're supposed to say, literally a blessing. You're supposed to say when you hear of the death of a loved one. The blessing is Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Dayan HaEmet. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign all worlds, ruler of the universe, however you want to translate it. Dayan HaEmet, which is probably best translated as the true judge or judge of truth. Dayan is a judge and Emet is truth. Dayan HaEmet. It's a fascinating notion in Jewish life that at the moment when you are most bereft and most upset about the loss of someone you love, you are commanded in Jewish life to acknowledge that this is the way life is. Dayan HaEmet, God is the author of reality. And the reality is that we all die. And we say that in Hebrew, in Jewish tradition, by saying Dayan HaEmet. When you hear of someone's death, any death, you're supposed to say this blessing anyway, but Dayan HaEmet, the acknowledging God as the judge of, of truth. We could have a long conversation about that, but I'm not going to. But what I, I've always been struck with is it's, Judaism goes back and forth between the sort of mystical, which I'll talk about in a moment, and grounding us in reality. We have the rituals about death and burial and mourning are grounding us in reality. It's forcing us to bury somebody and put dirt in the grave and do the burial ourselves, and not with euphemisms. We are anti-euphemism Judaism. We are about, this is what life is about. Now, look, we live in the United States in 2023 when still most people die somewhere not in their homes, still in hospitals or wherever, and everything is sort of sanitized, and infant mortality is really small in our country, at least for our community in any event, not not to project. These traditions grew out grew up in a time when that was not the case, when everybody had lots of kids and everybody had kids who died. I mean, not everybody, but most people, you know. And if your kid lived for the first year, it was like, that's a blessing. And, you know, before Jews invented all the wonderful things like, I'm getting on a high horse here, like antibiotics and things like that, um, <clears throat> Dallas, Novocaine, She's invented wonderful things. Anyway, um, before that, you know, before that, people died. They got sick. They died. Uh, much, obviously, in a much greater degree than we do today. So dealing with the reality of death was an, it, everybody's experience. You, you never could grow up in a town somewhere without first-hand knowledge and experience of people dying and and the rituals involved in people dying. So Judaism was always very grounded in the reality of what life is about, that life and death go hand in hand. We have it in our literature, we have it in our prayers, we have it in our rituals, we have it in our in our commandments of the traditional 613 commandments of Jewish life. So you're supposed to say, Dayan HaEmet, acknowledge God as the righteous sort of right judge. Uh, <clears throat> the belief that, in a sense, all are... Uh, that all the good and the bad in life come from God, uh, which is also something, then the, there's a famous phrase in the Talmud that says, you are commanded to bless God for the bad, just as you are commanded to bless God for the good. It's not an easy task for people <laughs> to bless God for the bad that happens in life. People curse God for the bad that happens in life which is why the rabbis in the Talmud said, no, no, you are obligated to take a step back, take a breath and go, life is this life. Life is like this. You know, any of you have 
spend any time with me at all know that one of my favorite metaphors for life is the EKG. Plug you in. If your heart's beating, this is what it looks like. This is not what it looks like. If it looks like this, you're not living. This is life. Literally the beat of life. The breath of life. Up and down and up and down. And every aspect of our life, our relationships, our families, our work, and life itself. And Part of the genius of Judaism, well, I'm a rabbi, so I say that. Part of the genius of Judaism is all of the ways that we are forced in Jewish tradition to accept the reality of what life is and not run from it and not hide from it. Um, so traditionally, upon hearing the news of someone dying, you tore your clothes. Now we have a ribbon, Kriya ribbon is called Kriya, which is to mean to tear. That most people only do that when they're at the funeral. The mourners get a, a ribbon, you tear the ribbon. Tearing the ribbon is a substitute for tearing your clothes. Some people still tear their clothes. Tearing your clothes as a sign of mourning is a substitute for tearing your skin. Some of you have had the experience of being having ex- such profound grief and shock at the death of a loved one that you go numb and you literally people stop feeling and do all kinds of things to feel again, including hitting themselves, tearing their skin. And in Jewish tradition, literally there are prohibitions against tearing your skin and hurting yourself in mourning because people did that all the time. Um, and it's a natural human response. And so in Jewish tradition, you so you could tear something, tear your clothes as a sign of mourning, as opposed to tearing yourself and hurting yourself and tearing your skin. But it's a natural human response to, like, try to feel something. Look, those of you who deal with teenagers in therapy and know that there's a a, a lot of mostly girls who cut themselves, part of the cut-themselves psychology is exactly that, wanting to feel something because they're they're going numb. For other reasons, not because of death, but that's it, the same response, same kind of response. So Jewish tradition says you, you tear something because you have to do something. You know, we are physical beings. We act and therefore we have rituals to do because when someone dies and you're grieving, you want to do something. Um, and so that's one of the things. Uh, and traditionally, you know, you, if you're at a funeral and you get a ribbon, you tear it, you traditionally wear it for seven days during the course of Shiva. Some people wear it for 30 days. Some people wear it for the whole year. I have two black ribbons now because of my parents sitting on my shelf at the moment, but I'm in my uh, current mother year of mourning. So I'm doing year of mourning rituals this year. Um, also, during that you're supp- time, you're supposed to abstain from celebrations, withdraw from work, avoid entertainment. Uh, traditionally, People wouldn't would eat very plainly and and not overindulge. And burial in Jewish tradition, as most of you know, traditionally you're supposed to bury someone as quickly as possible. Well, in the olden days, without refrigeration and everything else, it made sense to bury someone very quickly for all kinds of reasons. Um, so that's that. Kavod Hamet, the uh, showing honor and respect to the dead, him or herself involved several mitzvot. Number one is somebody taking care of the body, washing the body, preparing the body for burial. And then um, some of you have had the experience of when a loved one died, hiring a shomer, a guard, to watch, the, to sit with the body until the time of, from the time that their mortuary takes them to the time that you actually have a burial. There's a whole profession of shomrim, people who sit, read psalms usually, and watch the body. And there was always that tradition of somebody being responsible for all the obvious reasons in the old world to protect them from thieves, protect them from animals until the time that they would be able to be buried, uh, because we are uh, part of the Jewish attitude about deceased and about the dead is that the person isn't there anymore, but their body is sacred. 
No. We have this notion that we have our body, but we're not our body. I'm talking about last week. Um, we have a body and a soul, and the soul is living in the body while the body's alive. And when the body dies, soul leaves the body. <clears throat> However, in Jewish life, unlike some other traditions, we treat the body, which was given to us by God, as a sacred object, a sacred gift, not to be objectified, which is why in Jewish tradition, we don't traditionally have open caskets. We don't have wakes where people come and and uh, look at the deceased and do what people do in wakes in other religious traditions. Jewish tradition, we have closed caskets because we don't want to treat the body as an object and sit around schmoozing while the person who isn't there. Also, because in our tradition, we recognize that when the person dies, they are in the most vulnerable position. They can't do anything. Their body is sitting there and can't protect itself, can't respond. And so we need in our tradition to be instructed to make sure we treat that body with respect and love and caring, which is part of the process of burial itself. Traditionally buried in a shroud. Today, people are usually buried in their clothes. Unless you're in Israel, bodies in Israel are buried and wrapped in shrouds and just buried in the earth most of the time. And um, and also traditionally in a simple casket or a no casket wrapped and buried. But here, because we have laws, you can't you can't do that in the United States. Buried in a in a simple casket that was uh, initiated by uh, Rabbi Gamliel in the Talmud. Um, because Rabbi, Rabbi Gamliel was very wealthy and he gave instructions that when he died, he should be buried not in an elaborate casket, but in a very plain casket to teach everyone that we're all equal in death. And from that time on, the, his colleagues, other rabbis decreed everybody should be buried in a plain, simple casket so that there is no uh, differentiation because we're all equal in death. You can't take it with you, as they say. You can bury it with you, but you can't take it with you. <clears throat> so that's part of that. Now, all of that, uh, honoring the dead and how you treat the body, actually, when the rabbis talk about it in, in the Talmud or Midrash, they make reference, I'm pointing behind me because Torah's in there, to uh, a statement in the Torah in Leviticus, it, it says that you are not allowed to, to if when you have capital punishment, because uh, there's capital punishment in the Torah, a bunch of different reasons why you can, uh, after a trial, you can kill somebody. Um, you are commanded not to leave the body hanging overnight. It would hang, be hanged from a tree for a capital punishment. And you are commanded in the Torah not to leave the body overnight. The rabbi's comment on that in the Talmud is, imagine that the king has a twin, and the king is the king, but the twin is a thief. And the king's twin is caught and tried and convicted and hanged, because in many places they hang you for anything, and hanged, and they left the body hanging from the tree, and everybody walked by and looked up, and what did everybody say? Oh, the king is hanging. They hanged the king. We are made in the divine image, say the rabbis. We are made but Selim Elohim, in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. You have to treat every human being's body as if you're looking at God. And therefore, you treat the body with respect and with dignity. And based upon that phrase, the mitzvah, the commandment in the Torah, not to leave a, look where it starts, a convicted, capital punished body overnight. They said, that's like us, so that we don't look like we're treating God's image with disrespect. So, and then we have the mitzvah of comforting the mourners, which most of us know because we've participated. Things, you know, the ordinary things you do, help people with shopping and bring food and show up because 
mourners are mourning and distracted. And if they're fulfilling the mitzvah of taking the time that there's to be allowed to mourn, then they're not going anywhere. And then they're staying home and they're having, as most of you know, we have um, funerals as quickly as we can. You can have a funeral at any day except Shabbat or the first day of a festival in Jewish life is the equivalent of Shabbat. Let's have a closed casket, as I mentioned. Um, burial itself in Hebrew is called mitzvah shel emet, which means the mitzvah of truth. But emet is, although it means truth, is used in a different way here. It's to acknowledge the fact that it's the highest form of mitzvah because the person can't thank you. Showing respect and burying someone in the right way and mourning and grieving over someone is the highest form of mitzvah in Jewish life because it is only an act of love. You don't get anything back. Well, I guess if you inherit something, you get something back. But other than that, that's that, that's not what they were talking about. So um, it becomes the highest form of mitzvah to see to the dignified burial of those you love, which is that why you are commanded to place earth on the grave to actually fulfill the mitzvah of burying the person, him or herself. Um, now, you know that from reading the Torah, in ancient times, because people ask me, well, is it okay, if you're supposed to be buried in the ground, is it okay to be buried in a crypt? Is that what they call them? Yeah, crypt. In a mausoleum, which, of course, people do. You all heard about my father, right? Right? And my father died in, in Sacramento, and it was during COVID, and my parents had a plot here at Hillside, but uh, it seemed like it was going to be too much trouble and too hard to get my father down here. So my mother talked to the Jewish cemetery in Sacramento into renting her a crypt on a month-to-month basis <laughs> and bought a casket and put my dad in a casket and put him in a crypt where he remained until my mom died. Because after a while, she said, let's just wait till I die and then you can bring us both down because they're buried in the same Grave at Hillside. In any event, so that was the only time that I had a, a month-to-month <laughs> rental of a crypt from my father. It was quite interesting. Um, and they hadn't ever done it before, but my mother was sure. my mother was a force of nature, so she could talk anybody into anything. Talked them into renting her month-to-month. I think it was $150 a month, though. Anyway, so also, by the way, in the, in the Talmud, it says... Um, don't comfort your neighbor when their dead lie before them. That's literally what, that's the direct quote. Don't comfort your neighbor when their dead lie before them. Why? What do they mean by that? They mean in the, in the time of your most intense grieving, there's no comfort. (laughs) There is no comforting. So don't try to think that you can, you know, say platitudes or some magic words that are going to make it better. There are no magic words that make it better, you know, and, um, and, and it's our instinct, you know, we want to like reach out and help somebody when they're grieving and you, we are supposed to help somebody when they're grieving. That's part, one of these three fundamental mitzvot is to help mourners, but you do it not by trying to make them feel better, but by showing up and showing up. And showing up. And in fact, the rules, the mitzvot of what you're supposed to do when you go to a house, a shiva house, a house of mourning, is show up, bring food, bring something, and show up. And not even to initiate conversation. Theoretically, in Jewish tradition, you're supposed to just show up and wait for the mourner to initiate conversation. And if he or she initiates, then you respond. And if not, you're just there. It's the presence is the present, right? Your presence is the present of showing up. And it's the most powerful thing you can do, and it's the greatest gift you can do is show up for them. Um, so. We just go back to that crypt thing. Yeah. Oh, I was, well, before you, what I was started to say was in biblical times, from beginning from Abraham, Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah to bury Sarah. That's, that's a whole big story, you know, of, of the beginnings of the Jewish people is Abraham bought a burial cave, which Abraham was buried in ultimately, Sarah was buried in, Isaac was buried in, Jacob was buried in, 
Rachel, uh, Leah was buried in. Rachel wasn't buried there. Leah was buried in. It became, it was the family burial plot, but it was a burial cave. They used to be buried in, in caves for lots of reasons, including getting them away from animals and things like that, buried in caves. So the crypt is like a version of that. And yes, it's perfectly fine to be buried in a cave. And I will segue into cremation in a moment. Yeah. That was my question. Okay. So I'll segue into cremation. Uh, right. So, um, people often ask me about, about cremation. Um, and I guess I have two things to say about cremation or maybe three things. Thing number one is, yes, it's true that traditionally in Judaism, uh, there's been a prohibition against cremation. The prohibition against cremation, uh, began in really an era in which the sort of mystical notion of reincarnation became very popular in Jewish life. The notion that at some point in the end of days, when the Messiah comes or whenever the end of days happens to be, we will all be resurrected and roll our way back to Jerusalem. There's this whole elaborate mystical notion of tunnels under the ground because we're buried under the ground and we'll roll our way to, to, to Israel, to Jerusalem. Um, there is, there is, uh, in, in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, which is a, a very, one of the more later uh, books written in the, in the Bible, um, probably second century BCE, the book of Daniel, there's a line in the book of Daniel where Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust will awake. So that one line, many of those who sleep in the dust will awake, sounds like reincarnation to me. So, you know, a revitalization of your body, not reincarnation necessarily into someone else, but just that you'll be revived again, or probably a better word for that. But, um, so they take the Jewish mystics, took that line from Daniel, and uh, also the whole book of Prophet Ezekiel's got all these things about bones and dry bones and bones coming back to life and whole elaborate thing about the bones coming back to life, which probably was written as a metaphor for the Israelites who were in exile coming back to flourishing in Israel once again. But if you take it literally, it's bones coming back to life. So Jewish mystics like to take things that are metaphors and turn them into things that are literal. And that's what they did. So the notion of reincarnation became very popular so the idea was you're going to need your bones. So we, we don't want to have cremate you. You know, well, how will you, your spirit will go, where's my body? And you know, what happened to my body? What did you do to my body? Kind of thing. Now I know rationally that doesn't make any sense because rationally you wait long enough. Even if you're buried, you're going to turn to dust. Just like it says in Genesis, from dust we came into dust we return. That's the notion that of burial on the ground. From dust we came into dust we returned. And, you know, but issues related to death and mourning and grief are not about rational. They're about emotional. They're about spiritual. They're about the spiritual lives that we live and, and where we find the truths that matter in life, not the facts that matter in life, the truths that matter in life. And one of the fundamental truths of life is that we are more than our body. We all know it. Talked about it last week. Talk about it again. We all know we transcend our body. That relationships are not about our bodies. They're about our spirits and our souls. And you love someone, you don't love their body. You just like their body, hopefully, but you don't love their body. You love them and their being, which is their soul and their essence of who they are, which has very little to do with their body. The body just carries that part around. Um, so it, the whole cremation traditionally the prohibition about cremation really grew out of that notion of your soul's going to need the body to be there when it's time to revive itself. Now, in the modern world, where we're mostly living these days, although we seem to be regressing some previous time, um, in the modern world, Jewish attitudes about cremation are kind of two different directions. There are those, many, who continue to be uh, against, well, Orthodox Jews are still 
theoretically all against cremation because it continues to be a prohibition. Uh, more liberal Jews have often two different thoughts about cremation. Some say, I'm against cremation because it's like giving Hitler a posthumous victory after gassing millions of Jews and th- that image of ovens being put into ovens is such a powerful, seems to be revived this week, but a powerful image that there are many Jews who say, I, in general, in theory, I like the idea of cremation, but I can't do it because it, it just evokes to me too much Holocaust memories. And then there's a whole other, the other side, whatever side that is, of people, more and more Jews are being cremated. Every year I do more and more memorial services for people with uh, ashes rather than bodies um, and for all kinds of reasons, including environmental reasons and, you know, the idea of we're going to be in dust anyway. So it's not like we're not going to end up as dust. We end up dust one way or quickly, whatever, not having to go through burial. There's all kinds of reasons that people do it. And for those of us who are non-traditional rabbis like myself, I have absolutely no uh, negative thoughts about people being cremated at all, personally. Um, I mean, I have a burial plot. I mean, personally intending to be buried with my lovely wife, at Hillside, we bought our plot when Gable was 10. She's now 43. It's a lot cheaper then. Um, in any event, which is why I keep telling people, buy your plot. You're going to have a plot. Buy it now. Cheaper and you can pay it off over time. <clears throat> so that's the thing about cremation. You know, it's an emotional thing for people one way or another. Um, but certainly in non-Orthodox Judaism, there is no prohibition against being cremated if that's what you choose to do. And I have lots of funerals every year of people who chosen to be cremated. Um, and all, all the cemeteries, it's just not too long ago, doing a funeral at Hillside with for cremation, and they have small plots, too. I mean, you can still be buried in, in a Jewish cemetery, your ashes can be buried in the Jewish cemetery. You buy a plot in the cemetery if you wish. It's just a small plot because you're not burying a whole thing. You're burying, you know, the remains. So, as you know, when someone dies, Jewish tradition immediately following the the funeral is what we call shiva. Shiva means seven. Keep the word seven because um, it's traditionally seven days. The the next stage of mourning is those seven days um, <clears throat> in which you're supposed to mourn except for Shabbat. You're not supposed to mourn on Shabbat. You're supposed to suspend your mourning. doesn't obviously really happen because when you're mourning, you're mourning. But you suspend the ritual of mourning for Shabbat um, in Jewish tradition and for holidays, for festivals that, that come. That is the three primary festivals in biblical festivals of of uh, Passover and Shavuot and Sukkot, uh, stop the, the Shiva period. In fact, that, those come, you're done. Um, but during Shiva, traditional mourners abstain from activities identified with recreation and pleasure. They sit low. They often don't cut their hair. They often don't shave. They often don't change their clothes. Sometimes they're hard to be around. Some people have the tradition of covering mirrors, during Shiva, um, covering your mirrors grows out of a, I was going to say superstition, but I'll just say of a belief, not a superstition, a belief that mirrors are a gateway to the other world, to the next world, to the Olam Haba, to the world to come. And in an era when people were much more concerned about demons and evil spirits, uh, funerals evoke evil spirits because you're in mourning and you're a graveyard and you're connected to death and all, all the fears and anxieties and emotions that go along with death. And so part of covering the mirror was not to give an opening for some negative spirit to show up at your house because you're in the process of connecting with the dead. Anyway, we don't have a, uh, uh, Day of the Dead, like some traditions have, 
we have memorial services instead. We have Yisker memorial services at each of those festivals I mentioned and on Yom Kippur. So theoretically, for Jews, four times a year, you're supposed to get together and formally remember the deceased, say the Kaddish, say the memorial prayers on each of those festivals and on Yom Kippur. Um, what's also interesting about Judaism, I think, when it comes to death and death rituals, is the whole idea of Yortzeit. You know, in American culture, we celebrate birthdays. It's the birthday of Abraham Lincoln. It's the birthday of Martin Luther King. It's the birthday of whatever. In Judaism, we celebrate death days. Why? He asks rhetorically, because he's going to answer the question. That's how rabbis talk. Why do we do this? I'll tell you. I'm glad you asked. Oh, I asked. So there is a wonderful phrase that you may have heard me say before from the Talmud. It says, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. I have often said it at funerals. Talmud says, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Why? God, you asked. Because when a baby's born, you hold up a baby and you go, wow, wonderful. Can't wait to see what this child's going to become, what words he or she's going to say, what actions they're going to fulfill who they're going to marry or not, what are they going to contribute to the world. What's It's all potential. The end of one's life. I often talk to kids about um, writing their own eulogy. Imagine it's you're the end of your life. What do you want people to have, say about you? What kind of person would you be for them to say whatever you want at the end of your life? Because it's the end of your life that we all gather and eulogize and say, Betty Rubin, what an amazing, I mean, I got to eulogize her while she was alive, thank God, you know, a year ago and give a high holiday sermon and she got to watch. But, you know, talking about what my mother was like and how wonderful she was and all of her qualities and whatever. You can't say that when she's a baby. You can only say that at the end of one's life that you then say, you then say, here's what we've accomplished. Here's the person this person has become. And therefore, the rabbi said the day of one's death is better than the day of one's life. They say people are silly. Also in the Talmud, they say people are silly. People get on a cruise ship, which I'm going to do in January for a month. People get on a cruise ship. Everybody gathers, they don't anymore, but everybody gathers around and they, they wave them off and they cheer and they whatever. They should be doing that when they come back. Not when they're leaving. They have no idea what's going to happen on this ship. When they're leaving, they should be there celebrating when the ship safely returns to harbor. That's the way life should be. That's the way life actually is. That's what eulogizing and talking about people at the end of their lives is about. It's going, ah, this is what that person meant to me. What did that person mean to you? This is what that person did. This is what that person said. This is what that person meant in the world. This is the impact that person had in the world. And that's the the blessing of death and the blessing of grief and the blessing of mourning is that it's it's complicated and not simple. And not one thing or another. That's why Jewish tradition says you have to bless God for the bad, just as you have to bless God for the good, because there are blessings in everything, even when bad things happen. You have to find them. You know, last week, I think I probably mentioned that I always think that the human being's superpower is that we are meaning makers. That's our superpower. We make meaning out of everything. Things don't inherently have meaning. We give them meaning. That's what we do. The dog doesn't do it. The cat doesn't do it. The bird doesn't do it. The fish doesn't do it. We do it. We take something and say, this is what it means, including our lives, including our relationships. This is what it means. You know, and how many of us have had experiences that we thought were bad at the beginning that ended up being good at the end? All of us. And the other way, we thought we're going to be great, turned out to be shit. That happens too, right? All of that. That's the way life is. But it only is one of those things because we say so. 
because that's how we experience it, because that's how we hold it. And so, too, we are commanded, even when it comes to death and grief and mourning, to hold it in both hands. This is both a horrible thing that my loved one died, and it gives me, forces me to pay more attention than otherwise I hardly ever do to what they really mean to me. And hopefully take that every day into all the other relationships that I still have when people are still alive. Part of what Judaism expects us to do in response to the death of loved ones is to grow our soul and grow our hearts bigger with the grief. And grief can grow us in the most profound ways. So many people have gone through powerful grieving loss experiences and come out the other side a different person and to themselves a better person and better in relationships and more loving and more caring. I was just telling someone about one of the most extraordinary funerals I ever uh, had the privilege of officiating at. I won't tell you who it was, but happened to be a famous composer who had two sons. And when this person died and I was asked to officiate at the funeral, the two sons didn't speak to each other. In fact, they wouldn't even initially come together to talk to me about their father. They wanted to come separately. I convinced them to come together. Wasn't that great an idea, but they came, they came together. They sat apart in my office and I thought they were going to kill each other on the spot. All this animosity and years and years and years of whatever was going on with them and competing about telling me about their father and whatever it happened to be. And then I did the funeral, actually at Hillside. And only one of them said he was going to speak. The other one said he'll show up, but he wasn't even going to speak. And in the middle of the eulogy that the one brother was giving, suddenly... The other brother who was sitting in the audience got up, walked up to the bima, and threw his arms around his brother and hugged his brother and kissed his brother, tears flowing down his face and saying, I forgive you and I forgive me. And I can't believe that this is how we were acting for so many years. Life is way too precious. And They reconciled right in front of me and everybody else in the middle of the funeral of their father. Only happened at one time, and I've been a rabbi almost 50 years. It's extraordinary, an extraordinary thing. But that is the possibility of what death can do. And the depth of emotion that that death uh, calls from our very being, the core of who we are. So um, that's part of why Jewish tradition says you have to bless the bad, even even as you bless the good, because it's what you can do with it, what you can learn from it. Um, you know, what it was Ernest Hemingway uh, famously said, the world breaks everyone, and afterwards, some are stronger in the broken places. I love that. Uh, you have this week, uh, Wednesday, I think, there's a, the annual luncheon from griefhaven.org that I've been privileged to be the president of for the last 20 years. Um, and um, I'm supposed to say something, evidently. I was just told I'm going to say that. I'm going to share that quote because that's really what it's about. Being there for people when they grieve, being there for people at their lowest point, at their most vulnerable point, is a reminder, by the way, that in every relationship, there's only one path to intimacy and that's through vulnerability. Every relationship. I'll tell you how many hundreds of conversations I've had with couples about this. The only path to intimacy is through vulnerability. You can't put your armor on and be a knight in shining armor and be intimate. You can be other things, but you ain't going to be intimate. It just doesn't work that way. And one of the gifts of grief is that it opens up our vulnerability. And so many other relationships, if you think about uh, people can so often let other people in emotionally 
at their time of most vulnerability because they're, they just don't have the energy not to so often. Um, and that's what that's about. And then, so, you know, we have the week of Shiva. We have 30 days, a 30-day period where you're slowly starting to get back into the world. And then we have the whole first year, these three stages of grief and mourning, formal stages in Jewish life, the year leading up to the first anniversary, which is the Yortzeit. And Yortzeit is that anniversary of the death that we then remember every year. We light candles, we light a light, which is why if you're in our sanctuary, which is behind me, on our memorial wall, I have a, when we built this building, I put a quote from Proverbs that says, nishmat adam, that the light of God is the soul of the human being. Because that's what Jewish Judaism teaches, that the light of God is our soul. That's how God shines in the world through our souls. Oh, it's eight o'clock. Time flies when I'm having fun. Um, so I didn't get to any of these, did I? Yeah. Yes. But you got to all of them. That's what happens when you come here. So um, I have one more of these next month, and uh, I'm still going to tackle some, some more of these. I'm going to talk about afterlife. And I'm going to talk about spiritual and spirituality and life after death, because I didn't get there today, um, and deal with some issues of, of fear and a fear of dying and, um, people who've experienced, um, near death experiences and uh, out of body experiences and things like that, which I know a lot of people who have. And maybe some of you have. Um, and I would love if any of you have had any of those kind of experiences for you to share them with me, actually. Um, and you might, um, since it's hard, I know, when you're like this to actually talk. But if you were to write any of those to me, I will share them with everybody. Remember, you can always write me at RabbiRubin at RKI.org, O-U-R-K-I.org. Um, and if you have any other questions or any of the things that I've talked about tonight, stimulated some other questions that weren't in this list that I read, please let me know because I would much prefer to actually answer things that people are interested in than just make them up myself. Um, and I was going to talk about suicide and uh, also next time suicide and end of life things. I had the, the great privilege not too long ago of, of uh, being present at uh, the end of someone's life who wanted me to be there when she took the drink that ended her life, uh, which is a profound privilege. Um, and anybody else wants me to be there, let me know. But And we'll talk about that as well. Anyway, thank you all for coming. For me, it's an hour of this. Maybe next time I'll go a little longer um, so I can keep talking. I really appreciate all of you who logged on. And thank you all for coming.